Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, if you weren't here last week, uh, I would encourage you to, to go check out our podcast, catch up, listen to what you missed last week. Uh, because as we move forward in the book of Galatians this week, Paul, who wrote this book, is really, he's building on what was happening uh, in the verses preceding and what we checked out last week. He's getting ready to make this big point about Christianity. It's all been leading up to this moment, but you've got to have some of the background of what just happened. So uh, if you are here this morning, and you did miss last week, you probably don't have time to go back and listen to the podcast before I get into this. So let me, uh, let me recap just a little bit for you what happened in Galatians 2, 11 through 14 that we covered last week. Uh, the general idea of what happened is Peter, uh, Peter and Paul, who are both apostles of God, had gotten into some conflict. There were some issues between the two of them. And uh, Peter, who he had been shown by God, he knew better, he knew that God uh, loved and was pursuing the Gentiles just as much as the Jews. And if you don't remember from last week, the Gentiles are just non-Jews. That's all that means. So God is is passionately pursuing everyone. And, And so Peter knows this. He's aware of this. We went over last week how Peter became aware of this. And and so uh, Peter comes to Antioch, which is where Paul's home church is. And he comes in, and Peter, everything's been great with Peter. And, uh, but all of a sudden, when the Jews are present, Peter no longer wants to act like a Christian to the Gentiles. He knows better, but when the Jews show up, he goes and he hangs out with the Jews and is just as uh, he, he disassociates himself from the Gentiles completely. And so clearly this is an issue, Right? Because we, we, hopefully we understand that there is no room at the table of God for racism. And so as Paul faced blatant racism from Peter, he confronted him head on. He told him what the issue was. He told him what was wrong with the way he was acting. And, and Paul concludes all of this argument from last week by saying this to Peter. He says, listen, Peter, if you, who are a Jew, don't even live like a Jew... How can you ask the Gentiles to live like Jews? Doesn't that seem just a little unfair, right? In, in our Christian terms, how can you as a Christian who doesn't even live like a Christian ask a sinner to live like a Christian? This is a, the kind of concept that was going on here. So, so Paul builds all of this up so that this week he's building towards making a fundamental point, a teaching us a fundamental truth about Jesus, and about the good news of Jesus. So last week was Galatians 2, 11 through 14. So this week we're going to pick up in verse 15. So Galatians 2, uh, verse 15. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, remember, Paul is immediately following up where he left off last week. He he asked Peter how he could ask the Gentiles to live in a way that that he himself wasn't even living. And then Paul starts reminding Peter of something. He's like, hey, listen, Peter, you and I, we're both Jews by birth. We, We were born into this. But that doesn't define our Christianity. 
Listen, this is, if you grew up in church, if you've been to all the Sunday school classes, if you've been through the whole process, that doesn't define your Christianity. Just growing up in something, that doesn't mean anything. This is a personal relationship that we're dealing with. This is something that you have to make this choice on your own. And so Paul starts out and he's like, listen, Peter, we were both born as Jews. And and he keeps helping to make this point to Peter of, of what exactly he's talking about. When he says before, he doesn't say, listen, we're Jews. We're not like the Gentiles. No, he, he, he steps down. And he's talking to Peter for a second. So he gets down on his level. And he's like, no, Peter, we're, we were born as Jews. We're not the Gentile sinners, is what Paul calls them. See how he's making this point of, of who, the, who the Jews are and who the, the Gentiles are. This is, this is what Peter's wrestling with right now. And, and the idea is that the Jews had this idea that The Gentiles are sinners because they don't keep the Old Testament law the same way that the Jews do. Listen, Peter and Paul, they're the people of God, and they live as such. But Gentiles, hmm, you've got all these different cultures, all these different religious backgrounds, uh, all these different ethnicities, everything else going on, and all of these people together. Remember, you've got the Jews, and everybody else in the world is a Gentile. So you've got all these different cultures coming together, and you know what that looks like? It looks messy. It looks a, a little chaotic. Probably, from your perspective, looks a little lawless, right? Because you grew up learning certain things. You, you, were, you were taught to, to adhere to certain structure, to certain rule, to certain uh, fundamentals of how a human being lives and operates, and the Gentiles had something entirely different from you. So clearly... Clearly, we're never wrong, right? So the Gentiles, mm, they're the ones who are wrong. So, so to put this in a perspective that makes a little bit of sense for us, what, what Peter is, is wrestling with, what's going on here? This would be for the Jews. This is the same for those of us who, uh, who have totally grown up in church our whole lives, who have been here since we were little kids. I was saved when I was six years old. I don't even remember anything from six years old. But I mean, I grew up in church. I remember the pastor talking about hell and how scary it was. And I was like, well, if, if my choice is between anything in this place, hell, well, pff, that's an easy choice, right? So, so I actually, I got in trouble when I got saved, which is not part of this story at all. But I waited to, for the ride home to get home and then go pray with my parents. And I got in trouble because, well, what if we got in a car accident on the way home? Seth, you shouldn't have waited. And, and I was six. I didn't know what I was doing. But But so I grew up in this. And so this is the same for those of you who are like me. If I were to bring up Bible stories to you, if we were to talk about David, if we were going to talk about Zacchaeus, if if we were going to talk about Daniel and the lion's den, David and the Goliath, and, and all these different stories, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know exactly where I'm going with this. Versus on the other end, the people who just recently committed to Jesus. David who? I've got a neighbor, David. I don't know who's... Goliath? Isn't that like just some metaphor that we use for big things in our lives? Right? They, they don't know the same culture. So, so as you've got all this structure, all this buildup, everything in your life that, that has been supporting to get you to where you are now, we have to take a step back and remember for a second, some of us aren't there yet. Some of us just stepped into this relationship with Jesus. And we're going to get things wrong. They, they don't know the culture. They don't know the Bible stories. They don't know the history. They just know they committed to Jesus and they're figuring it out along the way. And if we're not careful, the same mentality that has crept in among the Jews can creep in here in the church, can creep in to to us 
individually. The way that, that we seem to have this thought that when somebody gets saved and we're so excited, we're, we're pumped for what's going on in their lives, and then, and then they go to the bar and they're like, wait a second. what being a Christian means yet. Like, I mean, Jesus gave an ample amount of grace a little bit. And, and so the Gentiles, I mean, yeah, they were still sinning. They were still doing things wrong, but that doesn't mean that they weren't Christians. So what we have to do is we have to backtrack and understand what it means to be a Christian on a fundamental level. And fundamentally, our relationship with Christ is not based on following any rules. Our faith dictates that we live a certain way, yes. But it does not dictate that our lifestyle secures our salvation. Do you hear that? Our faith does not dictate that our lifestyle secures our salvation. That's what's so beautiful about grace. That's what's so inviting about grace. That's this whole idea of bringing the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and if we were to go to Paul's next book in, in the order of the New Testament, how it's, how it's laid out for us, if we went into Ephesians, we've got this whole idea of God bringing everything back together, making everything one again. This idea of unity, because that's what grace does. And so, many religious people, Catch the way I'm saying this. Not just Christians, but many religious people. We, we have this idea of, of doing all the right things, the right structure, the right culture, uh, just getting the things right. Many religious people become guilty of this, something that's called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, I know that's long. Say it with me. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. So ultimately, all this is, in short, is this is the idea that your religion is based on an understanding of God, that he wants you to act a certain way, and if you do, good things will happen to you, right? So, so moralistic, if I, if I do the right things, if I keep the rules, therapeutic, I'm going to feel good. All, all the good stuff's going to happen to me, and deism just means that God is, he's the one that owes me. Right? If I try hard enough, if I work and, and do everything right, and if I, if I become the right person to the right people in all the right ways, then God owes me happiness. Do you see the issue here? The world, and especially America right now, is littered with religious people who ultimately only believe in moralistic therapeutic deism. And so how can you recognize if this is you? Because I think this is important that, that all of us here, we've already justified that this isn't us, right? But, but let's take an honest look at ourselves. How can we decide, how can we recognize if this is really us? When you've been doing all the right things, you've been fighting temptation, you've been giving to the poor, you've been kind to people, and when tragedy strikes, you're left spiraling. You're left with nothing to hold on to. Nowhere to go. Because your idea of God is fundamentally flawed. You're, you think you're following God. You're following some God. You're not following the God of the Bible, though. Your idea is flawed. When, when you're doing all the right things and your life starts to fall apart and you have nothing to hold on to, that's when you know that you're guilty of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And if we're not careful, a lot of us can end up right here. I've been here. 
We think that we're owed something by God because we're trying so hard. Not recognizing, and this is important, not recognizing that even the root of our morality is drenched in selfishness. Right? Because everything that you're doing is because you want to feel good. You're not doing this for God. You're doing this for you. You want to feel good. Guys, listen, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I told you, and my wife's not here this week. She's up north. I can say whatever I want this week. Just, I'm not going to let her listen to the recording. We'll see how it works out. But, But listen, I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't do good things to my wife for me. Because listen, happy wife, happy life, right? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an idiot. I know how this works. And listen, I mean, you better believe that when my wife left to go visit with her parents, guess who was washing the dishes while she was gone? Well, she's going to see that clean sink when she comes back. Toilets have been scrubbed. I picked up half of the living room. I mean, listen, we got two kids. Like, that living room is thrashed. There's no cleaning that. But I got half of it. And so, man, I mean, I'm going to look good when she comes back. Because I, I could have just sat on the couch, watched TV, done whatever I want, but I didn't. So I do good things to other people for me. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us do that. But, but this is why, if, if even our good things are drenched in selfishness, this is why God made it work another way. See, God could have brought humanity back to him however he wanted. He could have just said, here's the law, keep this, hope you get it right, and uh, better check your morals while you're doing it. Because if those are wrong, then you got the whole thing wrong. But he didn't do that. Instead, he offered grace. So Paul continues in Galatians chapter 2. And in verse 16, we read this. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. They're not made right before God. They're not guiltless before the throne by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's important to understand here that Paul is pointing back to the point of the conversation that he's having with Peter. Paul's confronted Peter because Peter was acting ungodly to a group of people in the name of God's law, right? He he was taking something that that supposedly was good and was actually sinning by using that thing. Paul's whole point here is that the Gentiles can never be justified by keeping the law. But let's take it a step further than that. You know who else can't be justified by works of the law? The Jews who are there, which includes, guess who? Peter. There's no hope for them to be made right before God just by doing the right things. I mean, Paul is hitting this hard. He needs them to recognize that grace plus anything is nothing. There's no grace anymore. If, if, you're, if you're doing any of the work by yourself, you've lost it. And, and Peter, realistically, he should know this. He, he should know better than what he's doing. He should know that his actions aren't what make him a Christian. His faith in Christ is. I mean, this was a man who walked side by side with Jesus. This is a man who argued with Jesus and lost a lot. He should know better by now. I mean, all the other apostles, Jesus said something, and and Jesus was like, do you get this? And the apostles are like, and Peter's like, okay, Jesus, I think you got this wrong, right? Like, Peter's the guy who went and confronted Jesus, and Jesus was like, no, Peter, let me explain to you why you're wrong. So if any of the apostles should have understood this, 
Peter's the one who pressed more truth out of Jesus time and time again. But again, if we're not careful, we can fall into this same trap as a church. We've been living, a lot of us have been living as Christians for some time now, and it's easy to forget what the main thing is. It's easy to shift our focus to all sorts of other things, all the things that we do to make a Sunday morning work. It's easy for me, believe me, to shift my focus onto the preaching and say that if I can just do this well, then God will love me just a little bit more. He'll want me just a little bit more. But that's not how it works, right? I mean, whether I come up here and kill a message or whether I come up here and bomb one, Jesus says, that's, that's my son. That's who I picked. That's who I created. And in me, you are justified not by your own works, but by the perfect work of my perfect son, Jesus. It's not on me. In reality, all our actions do is they show us, you and me, how broken we are, how messed up we are. All our actions do is they show us that we can never earn redemption on our own. It's only through Jesus that we can ever have hope. And so uh, the other day, while Katie was still down here before she was, I think she was actually packing to get ready to go up to her parents' house. And uh, Katie and I are in the bedroom talking and she's folding laundry. I'm not even going to try to lie to you and tell you that I was helping her fold the laundry because I wasn't. I just don't understand laundry, but that's not the point of the story. So uh, as she's in there folding laundry and I'm talking to her, we're talking about the plans for the upcoming trip and everything that's going on. And I noticed something. It was quiet. It was too quiet. Because we have a two-year-old and a two-and-a-half-month-old. Quiet doesn't happen in our house. Like, I don't care if it's two, three in the morning. Quiet doesn't happen in our house. And so it hits me as Katie and I are talking that it's quiet. And I stop talking. I'm like, shh. I'm like, do you hear that? Do I hear what? Exactly. Why is there no sound? So in my head, Parker's probably sleeping in his swing. That's fine. Great. He can sleep. But what about Felicity? What about his older sister? What's, what's going on with her? So Felicity does this thing where she likes to help Parker sleep, right? So he's in his swing, and Felicity comes in, and, and the best way to help a baby is to shove as many things in his face as possible, right? I mean, he's got a blanket on his legs, and she's like, no, this needs to cover all of them. And, and he's got, he has no stuffed animals? What's going on? Oh, goodness, I forgot his pacifier. Let's get that in there, too. I mean, she's just shoving things in his face. So I'm like, I got to go check on the kids quick. So I, I leave the bedroom, I walk down the hallway, and I turn and I come out to the living room and I immediately look at Parker's swing. And it's just Parker, sleeping. So where's Felicity? So I look down a little bit more, and there she is, on all fours, face down, and yep, that's a dog bowl under her. And so I, I pick her up and I scoop her away from the dog bowl as fast as I can. I open up her mouth. I look to make sure there's no dog food in there. And, and I check on her. I'm like, are you okay? You're not choking on anything? Like, what's going on? And, and I check on her. She's fine. Everything's good. But she gets that immediate, you know that look that kids get when they know they're in trouble? Right? She immediately, lip goes out, head goes down, and she looks up with those eyes. Right? They, they get you with those eyes. That's how kids manipulate parents. We know that, right? And so she's looking up at me with those eyes, but then suddenly something changes for her. 
And, and she frowns just a little bit more. She scrunches her eyebrows, and it hits me what's going on. She sticks her tongue out and goes, and I'm like, hmm, dog food doesn't taste that good, does it? You, you learned what you did wrong, didn't you? And so, because I'm a good dad, I went ahead and I got her some water to wash it down with. And, uh, but so, so here's the story. This isn't about my daughter. This story is about me and you. That's what we look like when we're trying to earn our salvation. See, when we're down here doing all these good works, expecting good things to happen, we're down here with a bag of dog food, and we're sitting here going, oh, oh, God, this is it's good. Thank you. Can I, can I have more? Because this is just so good. And then God comes down, and he's like, hey, hey, dummy, you don't eat the dog food. That's for the dogs. I, I think you missed the point. And this whole thing with the law that Paul is teaching us is, is hey, I think you missed the point. I, I think you missed the whole purpose of what the law is. The second we try to earn our salvation through the law, we missed the point. And I don't care who you are, dog food's always going to taste bad. It's never going to get good. Try to impress God with it all you want. It's never going to taste good. We're going to be left there with God looking at us like, what are you doing? That's not what I made that stuff for. That's for dogs. Like, why don't you eat people food? I made such good food for you. What are you doing? So then it's clear that our justification before God doesn't come from our works. It doesn't come from following the law. It doesn't come from doing enough good. Because clearly, what we think is good isn't that great. So then what does it come from? And this is where Paul helps us to unpack this a little bit, but, but you've got to remember who he's talking to. So Galatians 2.17, we get a little bit of a weird verse. But Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Well, this is a weird verse, right? Like, what is Paul getting at here? What, what's going on? So, the first thing that we have to agree upon before we move into this verse a little bit, we have to agree on this. Do we keep sinning after we've been justified by Jesus? We do. I mean, we see it in Peter. We see that, that he still makes mistakes, that he still does things wrong. He's not, he's not defined by those things anymore, but we still make mistakes. And so what Paul is doing is as Paul preaches this message of justification by faith, the first thing that he has to do is he has to recognize who's in the room. And remember from last week, there were a group of people who came from James, and that's who people was, Peter was sitting with. He was in a group of people, people who were, gen, or who were Jews that said Gentiles can't be Christians. Gentile Christian doesn't even make sense. Salvation is only for the Jews. That's who, who, Paul, or who Peter's sitting with, because the Gentiles don't follow the law of Moses. So, if this is what's going on, what Paul is doing is he's knowing his audience. He's saying, listen, I, I know what your argument back to me is going to be about this justification by faith thing. I mean, some of us have probably faced some of this argument where we've told people that, that if you're saved, you're saved by justification through faith and you never lose your salvation. That's held in, in Christ. And, and they're like, wait, so you can just go do whatever you want. And, and, and so there's a little bit of that rebuttal, right? And the, it, but all that is is a lack of understanding of grace. And so... Paul, recognizing present company, addresses the issue before they can even ask the question. 
And what, what he's asking is this. I mean, this, this should make sense to us in some regard. Have you ever gone to a grocery store and seen a kid absolutely running his parents ragged? I mean, absolutely taking control over the situation. Now they're there for what the kid wants and not for what the parents needed to get. And he wants the candy and he's going to scream and cry and throw a temper tantrum. And, and as you're going through that line and the kid in front of you grabs the candy and starts screaming and the mom says, fine, 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 and throws it on the counter and they check it and they buy it. She opens the candy and gives it to him. You're sitting there shaking your head, right? You're like, oh man, this mom is just, she's teaching him that screaming is a good thing. She's, she's teaching him that, that he can just always, she's supporting everything that's wrong in our society, right? That's, that's what we've got going through our minds, especially moms, I've learned this. And, and so the accusation then is that the parent is the problem for what the child ends up doing. The same thing that they're going to argue about Christ. Well, if Christ justifies us by faith only and we still sin, then, then doesn't Jesus support sin? Like that doesn't make sense, Paul. But, but this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that Jesus operates, the way that he pulls us away from sin throughout our walk with him, the way he's constantly, Christianese word here for you, sanctifying us. All that means is setting us apart, making us different. It's all a part of a process that he's doing in us. So yeah, we make mistakes, but he's always working in us to make us more and more like him. That's how grace works. And so what we have to understand then is that turning a blind eye and grace are two very different things. They are not one and the same. One ignores while one forgives with the intent to make right. Do you see the difference? And so Paul moves forward from Galatians 2.17 and he starts to unpack the idea then. So what's going on in verse 18? And Paul says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So all the way back in the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, if you go to chapter 11, there's a story there. And if you're not familiar with what happens in Genesis 11, I'll recap for you a little bit. There's a story that that we call the story of the Tower of Babel. And and so what happened here is God told the people on earth, he said, I want you to, to spread out all over the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Cover my creation. And wherever you go, I will be with you. And all the people said, no, 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 no. We're going to go to you, God. We're going to come together. And they all came into one place in the land of Mesopotamia is where they came. And they came together and they said, okay, now how are we going to get to God? And they decided they're going to build this massive tower that would reach all the way up to the heavens so that they could get to God. Kind of like salvation through works, right? If I just do enough, I can climb high enough to get to God myself. And so they all start building this tower. They're working towards, towards getting to God. And God's like, no, this isn't the point. So God decides, you know what? He scatters everyone's language. Suddenly nobody can communicate with each other. They can't work together to build the tower. And, and so what do the people do? They disperse. Just like the original intent. Just like what he asked in the first place. If we can't work together anymore, I guess I'll go somewhere else and make a home. And, and that's, that's the way that, that story went. And so what does all of this have to do with what Paul is saying? What does the Tower of Babel have to do with the law? Well, what Paul is saying is that when we're justified by faith, what I'm doing is as I'm sitting there building that Tower of Babel, working away, trying to get myself to where I can make it to God, and I'm just I'm hammering away, working on this tower, and then I realize, you know what? 
I can't make it on my own. I will never build this tower high enough. I will never get there. So I'm making the decision to take my tools and to put them down. And, and beyond that, the portion that I built, I'm going to tear it apart. And I'm going to step away, and I'm going to let God come to me. I'm done trying to get to him. I'm going to let him come to me. And then Paul says, if I rebuild. So it's as if I'm, now I'm justified. God's coming to my life, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take this hammer back, some of these boards that I put down, and I'm going to get back to work. And Paul's saying, that's sinful. What you're doing is wrong. So Paul's addressing the group there who, who are saying grace plus the law of Moses. And he's saying by following the law of Moses for the purpose of justification, you're rebuilding what Jesus already tore down. You in yourself and the, and the actions of following the law are actually sinful. So while you're looking at, well, what if, what if people sin when they're justified by faith? Paul's saying, look at yourselves. You guys are a mess. You're sinning just by thinking you can make it to God on your own. So then what's the alternative? Galatians 2.19. Paul says, instead of rebuilding, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Holy moly, so much stuff here. I could preach another hour from this point, but I'll spare you guys, and, and we'll just jump through some of this very briefly. The first thing that Paul does is he further proves his point that he was making before, where we were talking about the Tower of Babel and rebuilding and everything. The same way that we talked about the tower being torn down, Paul is saying what the law did is the law taught Paul to die to the law so that he could live in Christ. The law taught him, you will never be enough by yourself. You need someone else to make you enough. You need someone perfect to make you enough. That's what the law did for him. It put him in a position where he said, I'm done trying. I need you to do this for me. Imagine all the blinds close on the windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from dust in the villages from which they had set out on bikes early that morning. This is an excerpt from a book called Radical by David Platt. And in this book, David begins to, to show us this picture of what, he never tells us where, but he tells us of this secret church that's meeting. This group of people who live in a place where the government will kill them if they know that they're Christians. And they come dirty and sweaty and tired to hear the things of the Bible. And so they end up asking David, they're like, hey, can you lead us in a Bible study? He's like, yeah, of course. He's, he's a pastor in one of the biggest churches in America. So he's like, yeah, of course I can do that. And they say, all right, we're going to meet here at 2 p.m. So David prepares a, a short little Bible study for them. He goes out and, and he teaches and he finishes up and they start asking questions and more questions and more questions and more questions. And eventually it's late at night and finally they wrap up to go home. And they ask David, can we do this again tomorrow? Sure, same time. Oh, no, 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 no. We want to come first thing in the morning. 
Oh, okay, well, how long do you want to do the study then? All day long. And so these people were, were so passionate about the things of God. They had died to themselves. They died to the law and were now living in Christ. The things that they cared about, their dreams, their desires, their will to live, had all changed. And these people were living by faith now. They were living in a place where they didn't have the answers. The government was coming in to kill people like them, and they didn't care if anyone knew. They just desperately wanted to know God. Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that faith is the substance of things that are hoped for and the evidence of things that are not seen. Imagine your life for a moment through the lens of complete faith and trust in God. Imagine what that would look like for you. And, and so, so to help you understand faith, see how confused I can get you all for a second. We're going to... I made sure this was here earlier. Make some racket while I'm at it. So, so faith, right? So we've, if you grew up in church, you've probably seen an illustration kind of like this before, right? Where you've got faith because every day you come and you just sit in a chair and you expect it to hold you up. Right? You, you believe that it's going to hold you up. You don't come over and you're not like, okay, 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 this works, right? We just sit in the chair. We know how chairs work. We trust them. We sit in them. But, but here's what I think is going on for a lot of us. This idea of, of living by faith. And listen, I'm not questioning whether or not you've been justified by faith, but I would question for some of us, are we continuing to live in that same faith? Because some of us are walking up to these chairs and we're, we're showing everybody how good our faith is and we're like, yeah, I totally trust this chair. And we just kind of hover over it, right? We're just, we're not really sitting and we're, we're sitting here, we're enjoying church, we're part of everything that's going on, and we never actually sit in the chair. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to get really tired. My legs are already burning from sitting like this. And I'm going to get really tired if I try to make it through a whole church service like this. But I'm pretending to have faith in the chair. It's a fake faith. It's not genuine. And, and man, as I'm looking at this, this was a gut check for me. Because I had to ask myself the question, am I tired? See, I, I found myself exhausted, and I had to ask the question, if I trust God to handle anything that life throws at me, then why am I so tired? Do I really trust God? Or am I just pretending? Am I just faking? Have I made it to a point that I'm not really trusting anymore? These people that David was meeting with, they had genuine, they had true faith. They were, they were jumping into those chairs. They, they knew that no matter what life threw at them, that God was ultimately in control and they weren't afraid anymore. And church, don't you think it's time to take a seat? Don't you, don't you think it's time that you rest, that you had some faith, that you live by faith and trust that God is exactly who he says he is, that that chair will hold you every single time. I mean, just take a second and, and look at yourself and ask, am I tired? And if you are, why are you so tired? 
Are you faking it? Listen, God made that chair perfect. You don't have to sit and hover over it. You don't have to fake. Whether you fool us or not, you're not fooling God. He's asking you to just sit and rest. Trust me. I've got this. I've got this. And so then Paul wraps it up this way in Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul wraps up this life of faith by giving us a simple but firm reminder. If we're supposed to earn our salvation, then what was the point of God stepping out of heaven and being lifted up on that cross to die? If he's in control of it all, if he did that for us already, then what am I working for? Why am I trying to earn it on my own? If it's on you, then why did Jesus have to die? It's never been you. It's never been your responsibility. Jesus did everything for you. He built the chair and he built it perfect. He just wants you to sit. He just wants you to rest. Every time you try to do life on your own, you're telling yourself the lie that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. That I can just do a little bit more. I can do a little bit more. If you really believe in justification by faith, then just sit. Just enjoy the chair. Enjoy the perfection that the God of the universe has offered to you. Jesus offers us rest that our souls so desperately need, but we can only receive that rest in him. By praying to him that you believe in what he did and committing to him that you're done trying to live life on your own. You commit to making him Lord and letting him run your life. And and I want to give some of us the opportunity to do that this morning. So uh, we'll close out our sermon and prayer, and then I want to give an opportunity for us uh, to respond to God in this way. So God, we just come to you this morning thankful for who you are. We're thankful for what you're doing in our lives. And God, we're thankful for you loving us. We're thankful that that you don't force us to earn this on our own. And we ask that, that for those of us who have a relationship with you, that we can just trust you, we can move forward in you, and that we could have that rest, that we can be confident in who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask that this this. Uh, just this complete trust in you would be seen by the people around us and that they would want it, that they would see this and desire to have what we have. And God, we just pray that we could be effective evangelists for you. And church, I want to give you an opportunity this morning that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if, if you haven't taken that first step, then I want to offer you this opportunity this morning uh, to pray this prayer with me. And so if if that's you, if you've got this running through your mind, then just take this opportunity and pray this prayer with me. God, I'm sorry that I've been trying to do this on my own. I'm sorry for the sin and the things that I've done wrong in my life. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, and I believe that he rose again from the grave. God, I ask that you would be Lord over my life, and that I could always follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.
And so church, as we dismiss this morning, if anyone here prayed that prayer this morning, I want to offer you an opportunity to come down and speak with me. I don't want to embarrass you or put you on blast or anything. I just want to celebrate with you. Uh, I, I want to pray for you, and we want to encourage you on your walk forward with Jesus. And for the rest of us, church, may we just trust in Jesus and believe in what he's done for us. We'll see you next week.